All right, let's go to God's Word for this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and dive into God's word for today. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our ears to hear you and our hearts to receive you and give us the will, to, the desire uh, to obey you um, in what we hear. Renew us now through your word. Sanctify us now through your word, um, your words of eternal life, your words of eternal truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. We're going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, the author is an apostle whose name is unknown to us, um, but it's clearly a Jewish Christian who is appointed an apostle writing to Jewish Christians uh, who are very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Covenant system of worship. And much of this letter is urging them to look to Christ and not go back to the Old System, Old Covenant temple worship. And here's how he's been doing that. He's been highlighting two things about that so far. One is that the purpose of the Old Covenant is to be a shadow, a copy of the new, the new covenant, meaning the old covenant is valuable in that it prepared God's people for the new covenant that is coming. It's almost like uh, looking at a brochure for a vacation spot okay, uh, that you want to go to, but when you're actually there in person, right, and you see the, the sunrise at the beach, that's way, way better than the, the sunrise you saw in the photo, in the brochure. The Old Covenant is in the similar way pointing to, previewing the real thing that is to come, the better thing that is coming. That's the, that's the first thing that the author has been doing. And the second thing, along with that, given that the old was simply pointing to the new and the new has come, 
the old becomes obsolete. The old is passing away. The author said that in chapter 8, very emphatically, he's going to say that again later on. The old covenant and its system of worship are passing away. Why? How does the new covenant do away with the old? Because when Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, he completely reformed. That's the word that we find in verse 10 today. He reformed and changed the way in which God's people drew near to God and worshipped him. So the physical temple where priest after priest would offer sacrifice after sacrifice for the removal of sins, that was the, the brochure pointing to the Son of God, the greater high priest, offering the once and for all sacrifice that need not be repeated. So the entirety of the old covenant system was pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus and his gospel. Now, our passage today is pressing more into that, that Jesus is the culmination of everything. It all points to him. It's all about him and his priesthood. And uh, three things we'll be looking at today specifically to, to better understand this. One is, how Jesus removes all barriers that keep us from God, all the barriers that keep us from God. And second, how Jesus is therefore all-sufficient for our worship. And lastly, three, he is therefore the one who deserves all of our attention. So one maybe easy way to memorize this structure for you to reflect on later this week, all barriers, all-sufficient, all attention. These are the three points. All right. So, so let's dive in. Let's take a look at verse 1, okay? Verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Okay, notice here, the first covenant is spoken in the past tense, okay? The first covenant had. Um, it really is something of the past, um, and once the temple does get destroyed um, in God's providence in 70 AD, it's never rebuilt. Okay. Uh, in, a, in a way, it was God's forceful hand in, in putting a stop uh, to it. There's more we can say about that, but for now, let's, let's focus on the text. On top of that, notice how this first covenant or the, or the old covenant is confined very specifically to a location. And where's that? Earth. <laughs> an earthly place. And that's important because, for one, it contrasts with all the references to the heavenly places where God actually is in the previous chapters, Uh, but it necessitates this thing in verse 2, which is what? A tent, a physical tent. If it's on earth, you've got to have a physical dwelling place. It's a physical tent, and it's prepared by the Israelites. Again, contrasting with the true tent we saw in chapter 8 that the Lord has set up himself. So you see, the, the Old Covenant was first established uh, and given to, to God's people to, to worship God, to know God, live as God's people, and draw near to God at this physical temple, which later becomes a physical temple. And this place was, was it. This was, the, this was an extremely important place for the people of God. It's how they tap into the most important thing in their lives, their relationship with their maker, with their creator. By the way, right, you do know that's the most important thing in your life, right? Your relationship to your creator. Nothing is more important than that. And this is what they tapped into at the tent of meeting, the, the tabernacle, or later on, the temple. Now, here's the thing. The temple has some barriers 
built into it in its very design. The tent and later the temple both had this in common. They both had two sections that served as two barriers to the very presence of God or the presence of His glory. And these barriers always reminded them of one thing, that I am not quite able to fully access God. I'm not quite able to fully know God, see Him face to face, and have an intimate relationship with Him. I need a mediator, and even with the mediator, I only get so far. Even the mediator himself can only get so far. And these two sections are what's described for us in verses 2 and on. First section being the holy place. The second being the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Um, the first section, in the holy place, you'd be able to enter it if you were a priest, if you are in the, in the Levitical order of the priesthood. But the second section, you would only be able to enter if you were the high priest. Okay? You are like, kind of like the MVP of your people. Right? You, you represent your people and you, you enter the most holy place once a year. And even then, you have to go in, as we read in the, these verses, with blood on your hands, with animal sacrifice, it's blood on your hands to cover the sins of the high priest himself. And so he goes in trembling. And there were times when the high priest wouldn't make it out. He didn't go in with the proper sacrifices. So he would die in that most holy place. All this would have communicated what to God's people? There is a barrier after barrier between the people of God and God himself. The, the place is not only restricted, but given that there are different sections within the, the temple, the restricted place itself has another restricted place. I mean, just think about what that communicates. You can only come this far. And as long as there was this barrier, there's this relational distance between God, who is holy, and man, who is not. I was just re-watching the old Batman movie with um, Val Kilmer. Not, not one I would recommend. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face and Jim Carrey as a Riddler. Uh, you, will, you will think it's actually pretty bad. But I, I'm, I'm just a big fan of Batman, so I kind of find it tolerable. And I was re-watching it just for old time's sake. But in that movie, you get introduced to Robin. Um, and you see him kind of becoming Robin and, and all that. But he, he's initially, he's just a kid named Dick Grayson that Bruce Wayne brings into the Wayne Manor and wants to take care of. And, and it's kind of cool because the first thing Bruce Wayne offers him like on day one is one of his vintage bikes for, for him to just fix and, and, and be able to drive around. And I'm, I was looking at that, knowing it's fictional, I was looking at that going, That's, that would be kind of nice to be invited into the Wayne Manor and you know, where, where you literally have everything and get to, get to play around with these cool toys. But, right, that's not all there is to the Wayne Manor, is it? Right, cool bikes, vintage bikes. There's, not only is the Wayne Manor itself gated and restricted, there's a restricted area within the restricted area, right? The Bat Cave. And uh, this is probably the most enjoyable part where he sneaks into, finds his way, breaks into that secret door, uh, and realizes Bruce Wayne is Batman. And that's really when you can say you've really come to know Bruce Wayne 
for all that he is, right? It's if you've entered the Batcave, right? The, the restricted area within the restricted area, and now you know, know him truly uh, for, for all that he is. The temple with this restricted area, within the restricted area, right, um, communicated to God's people, unless, unless you can dwell with me here, there's a barrier between us. There's a relational barrier between us. And this temple, this, by design, right, uh, within the most holy place, held this, this very, very sacred thing uh, that we are told about in verse 5. It says, above it, which is the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which, by the way, the Ark itself is most sacred. And if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, I, I appreciate how they portrayed it to be that. Like, if you, if you mess with the wrong way, you, you, you die, your face melts off. It is, and that's actually quite accurate. But there's more. Above it, okay, there's something more above it, where the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, right? This is what made the most holy place most holy. It's where you find the very throne, the very seat of God. You know, when God first gave Moses instructions um, for the priests, here's what God communicated uh, to Moses to, to relate to Aaron. This is in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Can you imagine Moses relaying this information to Aaron? Hey, bro, congrats on the promotion, becoming high priest of Israel. You really, you really, you know, that's a nice gig. By the way, you could die <laughs> if you go in at the wrong time, right? Even, even if you were the high priest, the MVP of your people, representing your people, entering into the most holy place, this was a terrifying thing. This fear of God's holiness, his power just wiping away any imperfection near him like a consuming fire. Um, that's, why, that's why the high priest would enter with blood on his hands, trembling to cover his own sins. And notice this too. This is not the literal throne room of God. This is where the glory of that throne dwells. This is the dwelling place of God's Shekinah glory, a symbolic representation of God's presence. How much more? would we be restricted from the very literal throne room of God? We would, re- we would react like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. When he, when he beholds that actual, actual temple where the train of Israel fills the temple and the cherubim are, with two wings they're flying, with two wings they're covering their eyes because they have to tend to God, but they're, they're so close to his holiness and glory that they have to cover their own eyes. He's, Isaiah says, I am ruined I'm completely undone, and the foundations were shaking. There's a great barrier between the God who is holy and righteous and us, because we are not holy and righteous. But see, that's exactly it. That's, 
That's exactly what Jesus came to remove for us, these barriers between us and God. He came to remove this terrifying, debilitating fear of entering into the presence of God because when His blood covers us, it's always enough. It's always good enough. He became our high priest, and he offered himself, himself, as, our, as the better sacrifice for sin. And he offered himself at a different altar, not at the one in the, inside the physical temple, but on the altar that was outside the city of Jerusalem, on the cross. That was his altar. And he offered himself there, and there he removed all barriers between God and sinners. Remember what happened in the temple inside Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross? We see in Matthew 27, when Jesus cries, it is finished, and he yields up his spirit, what happens in the temple? The curtain, the curtain that was blocking the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, top to bottom, to make sure we know it's God doing this. It's not bottom up, it's top down. God is the one opening the way. No more barriers. Why? Jesus paid it all. He finished it all. He is our high priest. He offers a better sacrifice. This man hung on our tree is our lamb, our sacrificial lamb that takes away our every guilt and shame to make us right with a holy and righteous God. Do away with the old. Cling to this new, this better sacrifice through this better high priest. That's the reformation that the author is talking about in verse 10. This Reformation is not the one that Martin Luther started in the 16th century when he nailed his theses on the wooden door. This is the one, this is the Reformation that took place in 30 AD, around 30 AD, when Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed on the wooden cross. It's a way bigger Reformation, and that's the Reformation this author is talking about. And this leads us to the, the second point. This is what makes Jesus all-sufficient for us. Because he removes all the barriers, he is all-sufficient for us. He's enough. You know, when the Old Covenant gave Israel the, the temporary, provisional means of worshiping God, it was sufficient for that time. But it wasn't all-sufficient for all times. It was bound to pass away, and it did. When Jesus Christ became himself our sacrifice, our altar, and our high priest, who brings us all the way into the most holy place, like, like he parted the Red Sea for God's people. He, he parted all the obstacles, moved all the obstacles so that we can go across to where God is. But here's the thing. Not only Jesus himself become our offering, our high priest, and our altar, he also became, in a sense, our temple. Meaning he's, he's not just the what and the how and the who, he's also the where. Remember the, in the passage we read about the lampstand and the bread of the presence in the holy place? They each represented God in a unique way. Uh, the lampstand being always lighted represented God who is the eternal light in the darkness, shining into our darkness. The bread of presence, something that the priest would partake of in the temple, it represented God's provision and fellowship with him. Now think about how these elements actually point us ultimately to Christ. Think about what Jesus said about himself during his earthly ministry. Jesus says, for example, in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I am that light. I am the light that never 
extinguishes. I'm the lampstand, in other words. What else did Jesus say about himself after feeding 5,000 people? In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the bread of God's presence. And he says, eat of me and receive from me eternal life. Right? And this, by the way, is not just given to the priests anymore. It's given to all of you. Take and eat. See, Jesus himself is identifying himself, right, as the, the, the essential elements that made the holy place holy. He's, he's saying that about himself. He is what makes the place holy. Not the actual elements, but he himself. And, and here's the clincher. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And people first thought he was referring to the, the physical temple. But later his disciples realized after the resurrection that Jesus was, quote, speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. The author of Hebrews is, is making one point very clear by just deconstructing the temple for us here. Jesus is it. You have everything you need in him. If you have him, you have your way to God. If you have him, you have your offering before God. If you have him, you have your altar set up before God. If you have him, you have your priest. If you have him, you have your temple. It's all found in him. He's all sufficient. He's all that you need. You don't have to bring with you anything else. Jesus, it's all, he, all you need. You know what else this means? This also means, on the flip side, when we look to someone or something or someplace else other than Christ, you and I will naturally feel like there still remains a barrier. There's a barrier distancing us from God. If it's not Christ, whatever it is, your performance, your worship, your obedience, your achievements, whatever it is, you will end up raising again the barriers that God had removed through Jesus. Whatever else we turn to, we'll always feel like something is wrong, something is missing, something's incomplete. You feel like you're looking at a brochure and not at the real thing. And in a way, that's an internal call for us to come back to Christ, who is our true home. Right? Realizing home is not here, home is not on earth, on this side of heaven, we'll always feel the sense of homesickness. We'll always feel like pilgrims and exiles. And I think, in a way, that's a good thing because it, I hope that it will perhaps encourage us to look upwards more often, long for our true eternal home, think about our eternity more than our life here on earth. Because that's where God is, that's where our home is. When we look to our left and to our right, right, and, and nothing is the way it's supposed to be, when you even look at yourself and you go, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be, we can look upward. There's a hope when we remember this is not home, this body is not home, that's home, that's home. Christ who is at the right hand of God the Father. My life hid with Christ on high. That's home. 
I have a friend who some years ago uh, adopted a, an orphan child, a boy from, from China. Uh, the boy's grown so much now, and he's so loved, so well loved by his parents. But I remember just the times when my friend would, would just be asking for prayers from his friends during the application process for adoption. For one, it cost him a fortune. It cost a lot. And, and the other thing was just an overwhelming amount of just paperwork and just hoops to jump through. It's a complicated process, very taxing process. But, you know, when, when it was all over and they received that final paper, um, giving them the approval to adopt this child. They were, they were just overjoyed. They were really happy. It was at least a done deal on paper, and all that's left is to, to pick him up at the airport, so to speak. And I just remember just celebrating together, and the joy that he and his wife expressed, uh, we, we're going to bring our son home. That was their joy. We're going to bring our son home. And it, in every sense of the term, in that moment, the moment they received that paper, in that moment, this boy's new life was already waiting for him and, and, and secured for him, purchased for him on the other side of the world, literally on the other side of the world. But imagine for a moment if the boy had simply defined his identity and his destiny based on his immediate surroundings, his immediate circumstances, rather than what's promised him on the other side. What would he say of himself? I'm still an orphan. Nobody loves me. I have no home. I have no parents. That would be his identity. That would be his destiny. What would be your encouragement to him in that case? Look over at, on the other side to the promise that's there for you, waiting for you, because your identity is not here, it's over there, right? That will be your encouragement. And that's, that's the scripture's encouragement to us. Your identity is not here. Your home is not here. It's on the other side of heaven, on the other side of death. Do you know this is what your Lord and your Savior has won for you and secured for you when he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God? He's, he's gone over there to prepare a place for you. So now your life, your true life, is hidden there with him. What are we doing here now? In the meantime, we're here now only to be God's instruments to tell others about this good news. The mission that Jesus left us with, the church, is to go and seek and save the lost. It's not for us to have a good time here now that we have Jesus. That's a false gospel. The true gospel is to carry your cross while you're here and follow Jesus on his mission to seek and to save the lost. Are you seeking and saving the lost? Do you know that's why you're not home yet? The purpose is of you being here on earth is not to make a home for yourselves here, not to create some promised land here. It's not here. It's for you to point others to that eternal, true home with God where their creator and their redeemer is. That's our purpose here. And if we're following Jesus, we got, 
if you're saying you're a Christian, you've got to follow him on his mission. If you're following him on his mission, you've got to seek and save the lost. Your interest has to be with that one lost sheep and not to huddle with the 99. Okay, this ties in with the last point, and I'll make this one brief. Here's why this deserves our full attention. You know, all this stuff about temple worship, animal sacrifices, angels and heaven, it can all sound pretty archaic uh, to, to modern years, right? To people who own smartphones and send emails and download apps, this talk about animal sacrifices in the temple is just, I mean, what year, what century are we in right now? That's a very normal feeling to have. And as someone who considers himself to be fairly modern, in a sense, right? I have an iPhone, I, I like my Starbucks coffee, and I, I, I like downloading new apps, checking them out. This can be a challenge for me, too. These are the moments, these are the passages that make me go, really, like, are we serious about this? And when I get to a verse like verse 9, that's when I just snap back into reality. Verse 9, where it says, according to this arrangement, meaning where you repeatedly offer gifts and, and sacrifices in the earthly temple, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That, that's it. That's what snaps me back into reality. Here's a question for you. What has modern technology, with all its amazing benefits and advantages, and apps, what have they done to better your conscience? Tell me, what have they done to better your conscience? If anything, it's worsened it. Here's a story I read recently about um, this really cool story about a Vietnamese game developer named Dong Nguyen. And, And the game that he released back in 2013 was this game called Flappy Bird. I don't know if you came across Flappy Bird. If not, good, because it's not. Here's the story. (laughs) It's a very simple game that basically asks you to guide a flying bird through obstacles by just constantly tapping on the the screen. If that sounds like a dozen games that already exist, this was the, the godfather of all those, okay? It initially wasn't that big of a hit, but by, by early 2014, it became the number one game in Apple Online Store, and it started just bringing $50,000 a day as revenue. Um, huge success, and Nguyen is like becoming this millionaire. But he was torn. Nguyen, the, the game developer, he was torn. Here's why. Reviews after reviews started to come in about how addictive the game is and how much it's ruining people's lives. People were writing things like this in the reviews. My life is over now. I don't sleep, I don't eat. Another person said, it ruined my life, its side effects are worse than cocaine. Another person said, I'm losing my friends because of this game. 
And after just this, these, these kinds of reviews flooding in, uh, that same year, New and he announced that he would take the game down. And he, his statement was simple. He, he tweeted the statement, I am sorry, Flappy Bird users. 22 hours from now, I will take Flappy Bird down. I cannot take this anymore. I cannot take this anymore. What's he talking about? He's talking about his conscience. My conscience cannot take this anymore. No matter how much money I make, how modern a game I develop, my conscience cannot take this anymore. It's doing nothing. The, the $50,000 a day he's making is doing nothing to perfect his conscience. Not one thing. See, the challenge that you and I, that humanity has always faced, it's not how to reconcile scripture with modern culture. That's never the challenge. That's never the problem. The problem is always this. How are you going to reconcile your guilty conscience with the existence of a holy God who knows all and sees all? That's the problem. That will be the problem a hundred years from now. It's not about reconciling scripture with culture. It's reconciling your conscience with God. You should, you should tell your friend that if, if your friend ever comes to you, your non-Christian friend ever comes to you and says, you know, how, how can you as a rational human being believe any of this stuff? This perfects my conscience. What perfects yours? What betters your conscience? Ask them that. We have our answer in the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer to this. The good news that the Son of God has come to be our high priest and our sacrifice and our temple. That's our answer. We can take it because he took it away from us. He took it away from us so we can enter into the presence of God. Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I would like to close with, with and then just one simple application point. He says, quote, modern man, modern man, who is he? Is he so much better than all who have gone before him? The problem is still how to live, how to die, how to face God in the judgment, how to contemplate eternity. That is the problem still, and the gospel still has the same answer. Okay. The gospel gives us this timeless truth that we need that transcends cultures. And by the way, if, if truth is going to be truth, it's got to be timeless, right? And that means what? It's, it's bound to offend. It's bound to offend your culture at some point, right? Because it's timeless. It's not meant to fit perfectly into one period of time, one culture in time. It's natural, if it's true, to offend one culture at some point, at some level. And if it lines up perfectly with our culture, you can be assured that's not the truth, that's just a product of our culture. That's what it is. So remember that we have this timeless truth in the gospel. Here's the application. Um, did you know that studies now show that when you combine all the time that you spend on your smartphone in your entire lifetime, it, it would add up to about 
11 years of your life being spent on your smartphone. Did you know that? Including like work emails and all that stuff. You add up all the time you spend on your smartphone, it'll be 11 years, give or take, of your life. Right? So if, if, let's say, you get rid of your smartphone today, you're adding about a decade of extra time to your life. Just, just saying. <laughs> just, not that it's practical, but, but the, the bigger problem is it's not the time spent on there, but it's the kinds of marital, familial, social, mental problems that this technology is causing us. It's a real s serious behavioral addiction now. Um, and I don't know if you knew this, but even Steve Jobs, when he first launched the iPad, and if you see the talk, it's really engaging, uh, where he just, he really sells it to you. Um, just ha the ingenuity of it and, and how you can do everything on the iPad. He, later in, the inter in an interview, he says, I will never give my kids an iPad. I will never let my kids touch, go near an iPad. Right. Knowing its detrimental effects. He will sell it, but he won't let his family members touch it. The, but here's the thing, as problematic as that is, as addictive as that is, and that's something we should take seriously, the most problematic thing about it is not behavioral, it's spiritual. It's distracting us from Jesus who alone perfects the conscience, and yet we turn to all these things that do nothing, nothing to better our conscience, nothing to better our assurance, nothing to draw us closer to God. The application for today's sermon is, is this. It's, it's, it's very simple, but in all seriousness, guys, put down your phone. Put down your phone, pick up your Bible. At least switch the ratio a little bit. Balance the ratio out a little bit. Put your phone down more, pick up your Bible more, because the one who perfects your conscience is found in one and not the other and he deserves your attention. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would shepherd us and continue to guide us as we draw near, nearer and nearer to you because you have opened the way. And how foolish would it be of us to not run in that direction with everything we got. When you have parted the sea, if we were not to run across to the other side, how foolish would that be? Help us run. Help us turn to you. Help us to lay aside every distraction and every weight. Help us to say no to other things so we can say yes to you. Give us this wisdom. Give us this discernment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.